But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. Welcome back to the final part of our look at Alma Fielding's poltergeist. Last we left off, Fodor had just discovered deception on Alma's part, and that moved him to formulate his hypothesis about the unconscious mind working as the explanation behind supernatural events that occur like Alma's poltergeist. We kick this episode off with another experiment. Tuesday, 12th of April. It was time for Alma to go back to the pictures. Second honeymoon, if anyone was wondering. She was going with Hilda, that is Dr. Will's wife, who kept a close eye on her. Now, before going out, they catalogued the contents of her bag. 20 shillings and assorted bits of makeup. Dr. Wills told her that he would put out a pencil and a paper for her at the Institute for her to write a message down on during her astral projection. He and Fodor would be at the Institute late, working on a seance with Clive and Aline Richardson. As they neared the theatre, they passed a woman selling roses, and Alma commented that she loved roses. Pin that, it'll be important in a moment. At 7.45, Hilda brought two tickets, and they went to get their seats. Alma excused herself to find the ladies' bathroom. She was back five minutes later, explaining to Hilda that she had to step out to purchase some sanitary napkins. Pin in the five minutes, because that'll be important also. 8.30, Alma said she started to feel sick, and when Hilda looked over, there were suddenly a bunch of roses on Alma's lap. Fresh and wet. 9.25, Alma went into a trance for a few minutes, and when she was back, she told Hilda that she tried to visit the Institute. She'd knocked, she really tried, knocked and knocked and knocked, but no one answered, though Fodor did look up. Now, at the Institute, Fodor and Dr. Wills were seancing with the Richardsons. There was the usual knocks and bangs that came from this sort of thing coming from the table, though at one point, Eileen claimed that the table had flown at her and tried to strangle her. That's an image. Alma and Hilda returned 20 minutes later after the seance finished. While the researchers were seeing the Richardsons out, Alma went off again. When she came around, she said that she had just been handed a ticket at the cinema. They went through her bag and found the ticket, number 85425. When Fodor and the doctor joined them, Alma gave them the roses and the ticket stub. Hilda produced the two tickets that she had brought as well, numbers 85383 and 85384. Alma also called out Dr. Wills for forgetting to put out the pencil and paper. She told them that she tried to knock, but no one had answered. And Fodor does note that he heard some knocking sometime after nine. He notes in his journal that he, quote, felt the presence of Alma. Alma phoned the following morning to tell Fodor that she and Les had another argument about her going to the Institute. When she agreed to withdraw, a plate fell and a rolling pin flew at her, and Les relented, telling her that she better go. On that call, Fodor asked how much money she had in her purse right that moment. Ten shillings, half a crown, and three or four sixpence. How British money works will always escape me, but that's how much that was in there. Fodor did some calculations, and that, very suspiciously, would have been just the change left over if she had bought a bunch of roses and an extra ticket. 
Now, to confirm this, Dr. Wills called the cinema, and the manager confirmed the ticket number 85425 had indeed been purchased within five minutes of the other two. Bamboozled again, but still Fodor refused to dismiss all of Alma's stories. He somehow managed to convince Nora into letting him into the seance sessions again. This time he wanted to try something new. Taking a few lessons from Eric Cudden, an amateur magician who had written a guide on hypnosis, he tried, well, hypnosis. 14th of April, Alma was reclined on an armchair, and Fodor induced a hypnotic trance. Alma was due to go on a holiday soon, so Fodor had told her to repeat with him, saying, I shall eat plenty, I shall have a tremendous appetite, I shall put on weight, I shall not have any psychic experiences during the holidays, I shall not have any phenomena except at the Institute. Now, I have to say, his logic for doing this is sound. If this were all a manifestation of her mind, then hypnosis could work to limit the phenomena outside of a controlled environment. That is, at least until she sacrifices herself, lifting a plane off the ground as water rushes around her, and she wraps herself in a psychic cocoon, releasing the Dark Phoenix. Returning from her holiday, Alma reported no problems whatsoever. She was put back into a trance by Fodor as he repeated the instructions to Alma about taking care of herself again. He got himself a pin. He told her it was a cigarette and that he was just going to press it against her skin. It wouldn't hurt, just discolor it. He then pressed the needle to her hand and asked her if she could feel anything. She replied a negative. This is a cigarette, a red hot cigarette, he told her, and pressed again the pin into her. Still, she claimed not to feel anything, and this kind of stumped Fodor. You see, if she didn't feel the burn of the cigarette, then she should very well have felt the prick of the pin. While under trance, she told Fodor that Bremba was with them, and that he was pacing the room. He placed something beside her. Fodor felt down her side, and retrieved a piece of pottery with the label Carthage on it. Alma returned to consciousness. She told Fodor that she was walking with Bremba at the docks, quote, next to a cargo boat with a lot of coloured gentlemen walking about. There was a knock at the door. Dr. Wills went over and admitted Eric Cudden, in time for Alma to cry out and produce an African drumstick. The top unscrewed and there was a black powder in it. Nora was worried that it was poisonous and took Alma to the washroom to clean her hands. As they were coming back into the room, Alma asked if anyone else could smell something. They replied that they could. Rotting meat. Alma cried out, tiger, and then rolled up her sleeve to reveal three long marks, like scratches from a claw. It was in an interview after this that Fodor learnt of her history with high dexterity performances when she was younger, and that really pushed him into thinking that all the supernatural stuff that he had witnessed had been an act on her part. Now, I personally believe that she was putting all this on from the very beginning, but we'll expand on that towards the end. For the time being, I believe that she was very good at reading people, much in the same way mediums are cued in on body language. Which would explain why, following the following evening, she called to report something that was outside the realm of con- conjurations and spiked his interest again. She was laying in bed, she reports. She felt a heavy weight pressed down on her, a cold weight pressing against her. It was a phantom figure lowering itself onto her. Fodor then asks if she got that ghost dick. I'm paraphrasing a bit. Alma says she struggled, but was quite powerless. She couldn't shake the phantom off. She recalls not only feeling fear, but also physical pleasure, a moment of ecstasy. Fodor assured her that the ghost could not have impregnated her. Which, I mean, you really can't be certain of that, like, really. 
Alma asked Fodor to promise her that he would keep it to himself. He sealed his report and kept the envelope separate from his main reports. Didn't do real good considering I'm telling you guys about it now though. That Friday night she had been visited by the ghost again. It was less of a formless phantom this time. She could clearly make out a man with a broad head. She was certain it was someone that she had never seen before. He stayed quite a long time and visited twice that night. Now, we all know of incubuses and succubuses, demons feeding on sexual energy. They've been mentioned as far back as the Epic of Gilgamesh and permeate through pretty much every culture in some fashion. There just so happened to be a rise in authors around the late 19th century and early 20th century that featured the buses. Mary Sinclair had a short story called The Nature of the Evidence in the collection Uncanny Stories, written in 1923 that tells of a dead woman who enters her widowed husband's bed between him and his new wife. And I won't go any further because it really is a great read, and I'll put the link to the actual story. It's on Gutenberg, and it's linked in the show notes. Now, we can't discount the real-life ghost stories that Fodor told her about. The Richardsons with a jealous, ghostly ex, and a woman named Minnie Harrison who had been driven from her home by the spectre of a love rival, Mrs. Davis. Later, after the visits, she felt something bite her neck and woke up at 5.45 in the morning to see her Uncle George approach her. After that, she went downstairs and sketched his face. She then told Fodor that this wasn't the first time that she had seen her uncle's ghost. You see, it began a few nights previous at a variety show where she swore she saw George's ghost in the back of the stage, bowing and smiling with the rest of the cast. Back to more seances, which Fodor really restricted. He searched the ladies' bathroom, and Nora and Helen searched Alma while she was completely naked. She stripped and passed her clothes to the researchers, who then checked them out. Nora ran her hands through Alma's hair and checked her nose, ears, armpits, and mouth. Alma even removed her false teeth for them to check. After all was said and done, she dressed back in a corset and was given two baggy vests and a long pair of loose bloomers and a pair of stockings. Over all this, she pulled on the one-piece silver jumpsuit and had all the openings taped down. Before entering the seance room, her fingers were checked. Her hands were placed in custom gloves that were sewed to the sleeves of the jumpsuit, and Dr. Wills wrapped her arms in a fi final layer of bandages. Sitting in on the seances, Fodor had invited Will Goldston, author of Will Goldston's card system for exclusive magical secrets, of which I actually have a copy in my library because I was the kind of kid in high school who was very, very much into magic. Horace Golden was also invited. He claimed to have invented the sword-in-half woman trick Basically, Fodor was employing the, let's say, Fast and Furious method of it takes a criminal to catch a criminal. Houdini, of course, put it a little bit better, quote, it takes a flimflammer to catch a flimflammer. At this particular seance, Alma walked around for a bit before complaining of shooting pains in her stomach. She convulsed a bit in the chair and seemed to have lost consciousness for a moment there. When she came around, she showed researchers a small piece of ceramic that was underneath her glove. A few minutes later, she put the whole show on again, and this time there was a dog tooth on the outside of her stocking. She then feigned, causing Photo and Will Goldston to rush up and help her back into the chair. She opened her hand to reveal the piece of pottery was now outside of her gloves. The magicians in the audience claimed that she was the real deal, 
Goldston was on the fence about the validity of supernatural phenomena, but now he was totally convinced, by the end of this seance, he was convinced that the supernatural was real. Back over to the library, Alma was dressing into her own clothes when she screamed about a tiger again. Bright red marks had formed on her right elbow on her shoulder. As she did up her cardigan, she cried out about her back. Red scratches again, several across her shoulders, several more from her neck to waist. She wasn't done. She shouted again, her left arm this time, as well as more on her back and a red band around her neck. Jump over to April 26th. Bremba would speak in Fodor's presence for the first time. Nora led this seance. Bremba told her and everyone present that he had passed over 18 years ago in 1920 while studying in England. Nora asked where he had studied, and he kind of just avoided the question, asking, Why? Why do you want to know about me? Don't you trust me? Nora told him that they believe him, but they would need more proof to convince the outside world. Then she asked why she always felt sick when he spoke to them. Bremba informed her that his medium, that is Alma, was draining her power from her. When quizzed about the marks that appeared the other day, Bremba said it was from his pet, a fully grown tiger. Nora then asked about the waxbill finch, which had died a couple of days after its apparition. Bremba said it wasn't a true bird, but rather the form of an unborn baby. Nora told the room that this very much made sense because when Alma materialized things, Nora herself felt as if she was giving birth. Dr. Wills asked about the mice. Could Bremba tell us where they came from so that we could check if they were missing? No. No, he replied. The group all then broke for tea after that, and during the intermission, Mrs. Taylor, who was sitting in during the first half, began jerking in her chair, screaming that she didn't want it, get it away from her, don't touch me, etc., etc. Alma went over to her and told her that she had taken it. Not to worry, Mrs. Taylor, I've taken it. Totally unrelated, but I have a fantastic book about the contagious hysteria that I want to do an episode about in the future. Totally unrelated, though. After tea time, we had a projection test. 3.20, she fell into a trance. She said, Hello, George. I have forgotten to give Rose that recipe. Give me a pen and paper. Fodor gave her some paper and a pencil, and she wrote out the list of ingredients. One pound potatoes. One pound wheat, one pound raisin, half pound dem sugar, half ounce yeast. Alma told them that George was up trying to phone them. Fodor pretended to talk to George, but Mrs. Kelly, the treasurer, announced that George was on the telephone and to tell them that Alma was home. Laurie left the room to talk to George on the phone. Frodo asked Alma to bring something back, and she told him that she couldn't come back. George was holding on to her. She opened her eyes. George was at home polishing some stones, and she had left a recipe for Rose. Laurie returned and told them what George had told him. He was at home when Alma appeared and wrote a list, and then left with his compass. George would post the list, but the Institute wouldn't get it until later. The quantity for sugar was incorrect and was missing the DEM abbreviation. After tea, Alma produced the compass that George claimed she had taken from his house. And then there was more marks on her skin, yada yada yada. Fodor organized the time to go around the following day to interview George himself. Alma asked him not to mention the projection to Les. Keenly... Fodor writes that this might be because of her capacity for deception rather than any spiritual problem that Les had to do with it. Now, we're at a very interesting point in this case where there are very clearly phony cases of psychic power, but we see some real psychological problems surfacing. 
Point in case, that night, Alma had another visit from the Phantom. She was wide awake this time and couldn't move, but managed to will this Phantom away before anything happened. And to Fodor, she seemed genuinely frightened. This led him to believe that there were real cases of dissociation in these nightly visits, compared to the clearly fabricated projection stories. The interview with George provided several inconsistencies, enough that caused him to firmly place it in the realm of fiction. Alma and George had simply coordinated and memorized the story together. But before he could completely denounce the seance sessions, he needed to do everything in his power power to make sure that she wasn't just a sleight of hand master. And to do that, he was about to get invasive. Fodor went back to studying his notes and noticed that majority of the conjurations were after a tea break. Usually when they paused and Alma had a chance to go to like the bathroom and that, the ladies were much too polite to watch her at every moment, so he placed a restriction. Any apports were to be produced before she visited the ladies' room. Brember was not happy about this and said that Alma was feeling like she was under tremendous pressure. Which, yeah, she would be. Fodor was about to prove her false. Brember said that Les was objecting to the tests again. He particularly didn't like the searches. Alma's retainer as a research subject was doubled. Now four pounds up from two pounds a week that she received previously. On the phone the following Thursday, Alma told Fodor that she felt as though something was feeding on her. Something was sapping her energy. She felt a compulsion to hurt her pets. The day before, she felt like a whip had hit her in the back. On Sunday night, Laurie and Fodor went to a medium who communicates with the dead, via a new machine created by a spirit guide that was an inventor. It was basically an upgraded spirit trumpet, collecting messages from the dead by Morse code, and was advertised in magazines alongside reflective graphs, a tape deck, and a communograph, a table that had like a swinging rope that tapped on letters to spell out a message. Very uh, low-tech. Low Laurie broke it down for Fodor afterwards. They had used magnets to make the metal keys wrap. The machine was a fraud. It seemed all the spiritual events surrounding Fodor were being disproven. Fodor invited his friend Mercy Fillmore from the London Spiritualist Alliance to Alma's next seance. He put her in charge of checking Alma. In the inspection, Mercy noted some tears in Alma's underwear and stockings. She took a moment to mend these before continuing. Nora fetched a fresh sanitary towel for her, and Mercy grabbed it and searched it before letting Alma have it. She was quite thorough, to say the least. Sitting in was Eileen Garrett as well as C.V.C. Herbert from the Society for Psychical Research and Ernest Bennett, a known commentator on the supernatural. Ernest believed the hauntings were residual dreams of the dead telepathically projected onto the living. Mercy announced that she had searched Alma thoroughly. Evidently, not thoroughly enough, since she was able to materialize even more stuff that sounds. Fodor noted that she walked around a lot more this time, and she moved her hands over her body in a very mechanical way, her hands moving over her throat, diaphragm, pressing against her breasts, and rubbing her ribs. Mercy insisted that she could not have hidden anything. Fodor asked Eileen Garrett what she made of Alma, to which Eileen gave her this scathing review. She only detected a weak psychic force from her. Now, I don't know exactly which is worse, a medium saying that you're the real deal, or that you are too psychically weak to perform such tricks. According to Eileen, Alma was drawing her power from other sources, like Eileen herself, who could feel the pull at the time. 
She had seen an image of a baby flying around Alma suggesting a blockage over the umbilicus, a deep-seated shock. So the results of this seance, Alma managed to produce aborts without going to the ladies' room. CVC Herbert had a keen eye, and he told Fodor that the way she fell, he had only seen stage performers perform, and that the tiger scratches were all places that she would easily and quickly reach with her hands. Furthermore, he criticized the investigators for not carrying out an internal examination. Now, that isn't to say that the thought didn't cross Fodor's mind, for it certainly did, but he had this little problem called consent. He would need Alma's permission to root around in her vagina, and the women on the investigative team already voiced their objection to the suggestion of an internal exam, but there was another way to search internal cavities, one that's a little less invasive, x-rays. It was Friday the 13th, that is to say Fodor's 43rd birthday. An x-ray machine was placed in the room with the recording equipment. Alma at first objected to the x-ray machine, saying that Les wouldn't like it, and that she felt uneasy thanks to her frequent trips to the hospital in her earlier life. Fodor took a two-step approach here. Uh, he pointed out first and foremost how bad it would look if she refused to be scanned. People might suspect she was hiding something, but then he also reassured her that it wasn't designed to catch her out, but rather to establish whether the items were materializing as people noticed them, or if they were already present with her. Evidently she was okay with that explanation because she was fine with the x-rays. The first exposure failed to expose. Thankfully she laid down for more after tea when Fodor asked. He got a shot of her pelvis and her chest. Again, Fodor noticed how her hands moved about her throat and abdomen. Laurie noticed tugs at the suit fabric. She managed to conjure a small heart-shaped locket and a pin. After that, she claimed she was unwell to continue. When removing the jumpsuit, researchers noted a red mark above her left breast, like something was pressing against it. Alma shouted about more scratches, and then she asked to see the x-rays. Fodor lied and said that they wouldn't be developed until tomorrow. She left, and Fodor rushed to check the x-rays. I'm sure it's no surprise, right where the researchers spotted the red mark was a shape that was the exact same as the brooch. Further down, the corset was a small heart shape. When he told the other investigators, Helen and Nora said they noticed Alma pulling at the suspender straps of her corset. It was a disappointing night, made further disappointing by the news from Dr. Wills that he found out that George was in love with Alma. Everything he testified could be struck off as collusion. With a closer eye, he went over other experiences he had seen Alma perform. At the seances, the temperature, smells, and touches can all be induced by mere suggestion. And when no one seemed to be looking at items, that's when they flew from Alma's hands. And the ring? You remember the ring that appeared in the film canister? Well, she could have easily bought the same ring at a different location and slipped that one into the canister. If he reported all the fraudulent evidence that he had found that night, it would add more fuel to the fire for the libel suit that was going with psychic news. Still ongoing. Despite everything basically going to shit, there was still something to salvage from this, something more psychological. What motive did Alma have to do this? It couldn't be money. She was well off. Maybe it was the thrill of it? an element of exhibitionism. Either way, Fodor and the team agreed to move forward as if nothing had changed. So there were more searches, more seances, 
More scratches, more trances. We are introduced to a child that possessed Alma once, but he didn't really say anything other than mummy, so let's forge on. During one seance, Alma's abdomen began to swell after she fainted onto the couch. It expanded so much that she looked pregnant and had to undo her skirt. With a shrill shriek, she put her hands between her legs and pulled out a small stone and an old coin. She complained that they were burning her. As her corset had become undone with the uh, expansion, the men left the room until she was decent. As she stood, a piece of linen 10 by 10 centimeters dropped to the floor. Fodor was handed the fabric when he returned. He sniffed it, and there was a faint smell of vaginal discharge. He guessed Alma used this to cover the items as they were in her vaginal canal. The only way she could retrieve them convincingly would be to, quote, birth the items. The fabric wasn't replaced well enough and had fallen out as she stood. Alma's stomach was back to normal by the time she was leaving the institute. Now, it probably wasn't needed, but in an effort to be thorough, Fodor got a pharmacist friend to confirm that the linen square had cells and bacteria that confirmed its origin. And Alma went back to the stories of a nightly visitor. On 19th of May, she called and told Fodor that she couldn't continue with the experiments. You see, her stomach, it kept on swelling. But more disturbing was a cold touch every night. In the morning, she would wake to find two fresh puncture wounds on her neck. And she felt weak. Fodor called in on Alma without phoning ahead. George answered the door and was quite belligerent to Fodor, but ultimately relented and let him in. Alma was in the kitchen, but when George told her who the visitors were, she called out that she was just washing herself and dashed upstairs before coming back down eventually. Dr. Wills was the one who checked the puncture wounds, and he confirmed that they weren't fresh. They were made at least several hours ago. More than likely, they had been made during the middle of the night. Laurie got himself a photograph. She explained the night further. 10.15, she went to bed. She could feel the vibration in the air and could hear a leathery flapping. She woke later that night to feel a body pressing against her left side. Quote, I felt something hard and round pressed into my neck. I felt no pain just pins and needles all along my neck. It was the size of a man's head. She was paralyzed and the thing pressing beside her was cold. And just like that, it all disappeared and she could hear flapping growing distant. She reported being cold and numb in the morning, as if she had lost an enormous amount of blood. In addition to this, she had been having a recurring dream where she was in a room filled with coffins. Furthermore, Alma told Fodor that she felt as if she was becoming untethered from her body. Now, she wasn't the only one that was experiencing some problems. Les also had bad dreams and awoke feeling drained. Now, not to sound like I'm discounting it or anything, but if you read through some of the interviews with him, it's quite clear that this dude was suffering from PTSD from World War I. So maybe not supernatural, but definitely a psychological issue there. Fodor cancelled all public sittings for future seances. It was clear to Fodor that this was moving outside of the realm of parlor tricks. May 20th, we are now introduced to an Indian girl who inhabited Alma's body, along with an unnamed child. Jimmy the Poltergeist, and Bremba the Persian Artist. The Indian girl in the later session would be identified as Mevanwe, who had just died five years prior at the age of 16. The Indian girl, Bremba claimed, had entered her body during one surgery to drain the abscesses on Alma's kidney, and that it was Alma's own spirit that was returning to her in the form of a bat each night to get her energy back back. Bremba suggested that they trap and kill the bat. 
which would release Alma's spirit and return it to her body. Now, Fodor guessed that Alma was familiar with Dracula. Published some 30 years prior, as well as the recent Bela Lugosi movies, there was a connection with bats, sleeping in coffins, and blood-sucking. Eileen then took over the seance from Nora, and called on Uvani. Uvani told investigators to treat Alma with respect whether or not the vampire story was true or not. When dealing with an obsession, it can manifest itself into reality. The idea of a psychologically damaged person being invaded by a spirit wasn't something new. Fodor explained in his encyclopedia about the Jewish myth of the Dybbuk, a vengeful soul that could possess the body of a living person. Fodor had another thought after this. Maybe, after the initial poltergeist attack, Alma worked to make it seem like she was the one in control by staging everything thereafter. His friend, Ronnie Cockersell, had gone through the same thing after a spiritual awakening. He had to resort to cheap tricks in the hopes of faking it until you're making it, and he got the power back again. Helen Russell Scott passed on to Fodor a message from a medium called Sharplin. She told them that Alma was vulnerable to the lower astral primitive dimension inhabited by elementals. She warned that vampires also drank energy from living people around them. Sharplin finished off the message by telling them that she would no longer be attending Alma's seances since she felt as though Alma was draining her psychic energy. Leading to Fodor's fear that Alma's mental state was in sensitive position, Sunday, May 22nd, he, Irene, Eileen Garrett, and Laurie Evans visited Alma's home just to have a chat. Eileen asked Les if he thought Alma was psychic, and Les responded that he did. Eileen then pushed for Alma to further develop her mediumship, Les was very much against that. He saw the psychic experiments as the very cause of her nightmares and delusions. It came out that Alma had fits of insanity, where she threatened to kill Les and then leave him. Les was lenient in this case, and saw that she was clearly troubled by something. Alma admitted that there were times that she felt like she, quote, wanted to throw everything about in the room. In this admission, she aligns her actions with the violent actions of her poltergeist. Of course, Eileen couldn't resist bringing out Yuvani and asking for his opinion, and no one in the room thought it was the least bit inappropriate. So, Yuvani warned Alma that she was using mischief to impersonate the supernatural, and in doing so, she had opened herself up for true possession. Fodor pulled her aside and informed her that she really needed to stop with all the performances. The researchers, they could really expose her, and she was messing with powers that might cause true psychic disturbances. Alma acknowledged what he said, and said that she understood, but by then it was too late to pull the brakes. Two days later, George received an anonymous call that informed him that Alma was a fraud, whether she knew it or not. When Alma told Fodor about this, she also inquired as to the x-ray plate. At the institute, Fodor told Alma about the x-ray and the piece of linen. Alma protested, adamantly, that internally she was too small to hide anything inside of her. Then Fodor let Alma in on a bit of his theory. The Institute saw no need to continue her experiments, so they would be ceasing her four-pound contract, but Fodor hoped that she would still come to the Institute for curative treatment. The following morning, Alma phoned to tell Fodor that Les wouldn't let her go to the Institute. It was up to her, Fodor said, but the situation was now serious. If she ceased attending, she could be playing with the psychic power alone, and that he 
would take no further responsibility for what might happen to her. He then implied the x-rays, so far only shown to a handful of researchers, would be very damaging to her if they happened to find their way to the public. The lawsuit with Psychic News pops its head up again. Fodor had to take some time to gather the evidence and submit it for an upcoming trial. 27th of May, Alma underwent hypnosis therapy with Fodor, who, like the last time, encouraged her to take care of herself. While having tea, her waist expanded again, and Alma lamented that there wasn't an x-ray machine on hand to capture, quote, the psychic baby. The following Tuesday, Fodor had Alma in a trance again. She couldn't speak, and so Fodor spoke firmer and louder, commanding her to answer him. After placing, placing a pencil in her hand, she wrote, Be warned. After the session, Alma said that she felt like she was buried alive. Fodor hypnotized her again that afternoon. He had a talk to Bremba this time, and asked him about the linen square. Bremba observed that there were more than one lady in the room. Draw your own conclusions. Fodor writes that this session, Bremba acted like a cornered criminal, one whose very last defense was claiming a frame-up, throwing the accusations around. Quote, The accusation was not only a complete giveaway, but it also alienated the sympathies of the ladies who so far were the medium's best friends and were ready to make any allowance for her. Alma tried to appease or perhaps bribe the researchers at tea after that session, dropping precious stones around the room for them. She also had more instances of the scratches. June 2nd, Alma admitted that she wanted to take a bite out of Les's neck, and that the night before, a coat hanger had flown out of the wardrobe and almost hit Les in the head. It would be easy for one to disregard this as a flight of fantasy, but Fodor listened carefully. If Alma was deep into this delusion as he thought she was, then there was a very real chance that it could evolve into real-world action. And these confessions were a prelude to murder. Alma was also staying awake at night, in anticipation of the bat, or incubus, taking on its traits during the day, hostile, sexualized, and thirsty for blood. Then the poltergeist started throwing shit around it regularly again. Her eyesight even failed on her again. Fodor's treatment was to place her under hypnosis and try to get her to discuss what had triggered her last blindness episode she had, returning to Freud's argument and running under the, the idea that a disowned memory could return as physical symptoms. He asked if everything was alright at home. It wasn't. Her and Les were fighting about money more and more. Fodor told her, quote, by repressing hatred, we bottle it up. Instead of being spent in a burst of temper, it creates an inward pressure. And that seemed to do it. The next time she was at the Institute, she had miraculously regained her sight. Fodor continued to dig and debunk other phenomena surrounding Alma. The marks he learnt were from dermatographic urticaria. Scratch skin reddened and raised after a delay of a few seconds to minutes, as if they appeared without reason. And a Hungarian friend told him how one might swallow air and use muscular contractions to artificially expand the abdomen. He was very careful disclosing this to anyone. Alma was already in a delicate state and had seemingly gotten worse after she realized she had been caught out by the x-rays. He talked to Elizabeth Severn about the case. Severn saw a lot of herself in Alma, having suffered a breakdown as a young woman from traumatic events resurfacing. Sandor Ferenzi uncovered that she had been sexually assaulted and pimped out by her father, who also drugged her and at one time forced her to shoot a man dead. It was his theory 
that the mind split into multiple personalities, a child, a caretaker, and a soulless mechanical body. Forenzi likened the shell shock that he had seen as a medic in World War II to the same symptoms as those who had been sexually assaulted as children. We, of course, know this today as PTSD. He speculated that those who experienced these, quote, little deaths acquired a kind of psychic sensitivity. And so with this in his mind, Fodor set about to see if Alma held trauma, which might be the root cause of all of her problems. He began with her childhood, which was more or less fine. He asked her about her dreams. She had one recurrent dream about a cave, the air thick with the smell of fungus. Fodor would later interpret the dream as a womb and her guilt over a baby that she lost in utero. When he inquired about her sexual experiences, she told him that she had cried and fainted her first time with Les, and that she had always dreamed of being a nun. Despite the obvious thing between them, she reported that George had always been a gentleman to her. In a future seance, Bremba reported a vision of a man standing beside a church with rope marks deep in his neck, having been hanged for interfering with small children. Note, this is the first time that Alma has spoken of any sort of sexual assault. Fractured psyches and multiple personalities. Fodor was convinced that Alma was a victim having a mind that worked against her, one that was tapped into spirits. It would be the poltergeist side of her, that things around the room that could make puncture marks in her neck to convince the other mind that it were being drained. Fodor notes in his journal that she had a strong masochistic drive and seemed to play both the aggressor and the victim. Severn was sure that Alma was a victim of sexual assault as a child, upon reading his notes. She supposed that Alma had been abused by her father, or maybe another man in her circle. Her uncle George, perhaps, since she had seen his ghost a few times, or her grandfather Jimmy, whose form she took in her mind as the poltergeist. Severn would explain the tricks as a child side of her, playing up, the true psychic phenomena coming from another part of her. She then pinpointed to Fodor the exact moment that she believed Alma had been assaulted, the bike accident. She was sure that the accident was actually a cover memory for the original attack. To test this hypothesis, they put Alma through a word association test, overseen by Mr. Swift, a psychologist. Fodor read off 101 words, most of which she replied quickly to. Some took her a little longer than three seconds. Hanging was ghastly. Lodger, room, parliament, mix-up. When she got to bicycle, she froze. It took her 22 seconds to answer with pleasure. There would be further word tests, but first Fodor wanted to talk about her memories for a bit. Alma opened up the, about 1931 when she was pregnant. She was washing some clothes in the tub, and she saw a dead rat float to the top. It was mutilated. The top half of it was burned. That night she went into labor but miscarried her two babies. The boy, she describes, was perfect. The girl, however, was deformed, like the rat. Alma believed that the shock from seeing the rat had damaged the fetuses in the womb. And on that cheery note, Fodor went back into another word association and eased in with the word rape. Alma was immediately agitated as one could guess. Fodor explained to her that he only prompted it because there was some evidence that she had been sexually assaulted as a child. Alma at this point was on the verge of tears. 
She would later ask her mother if anything had happened to her as a child, and her mother told her that she returned home one day late from school, telling her of a man that had given her sweets. Alma then opened up to Fodor about an, quote, erotic dream she once had about a little man covered in scales, and told him that sometimes she wished to be dead, having thoughts of suicide ever since she was a small child. Over the next few days, Alma would call Fodor and open up more and more to him, telling him about her hatred for Les and how, after the death of their second child, he refused to support her as she grieved. And in that instance, she attacked him with a carving knife. Nora was disturbed by Fodor's conclusions on the case. Alma was suffering from psychic disintegration stemming from trauma. Nora wasn't happy with him spouting this idea out there, since it was essentially suggesting that supernatural power was part of a mental breakdown. In fact, she feared that if Fodor published this idea, it could very well ruin the Institute altogether. The next time Alma was in a trance at the seance room, Fodor tried to prize out more memories, and Nora straight up cut him off trying to find out more about Bremba and the medium that he inhabited. As a next step effort to try to get the suppressed memories out of her, Fodor asked Alma if she'd be willing to be injected with scopolamine, a truth serum uh, around at that time. Now, this was the last straw for Nora. She asked him to suspend the seances altogether, which he agreed to do to give Alma a rest. When they broke for tea, Alma told Fodor about a swelling under her arm, and he said straight up, just go to the doctor. Just go to the doctor. Uh, more so because he was worried her feelings were manifesting as a tumor. After she left, she called from a public phone distressed to tell him that she had mentally listened in to a conversation between him and Nora. Now, Fodor was a little unsettled by how spot-on she was about the key points of the conversation, namely about how he believed her to be a fake. He told her that uh, she'd imagined it, not to worry about what he might have said. The Institute held a meeting about Alma the following week. Fodor was not invited. Nora told them about the truth drug and the aggressive use of psychoanalytic techniques. The board decided to immediately end the investigation. When Fodor was told, he was a bit miffed to say the least. He straight away began writing a report on Alma, writing a scathing note about how his findings were too distasteful for the high moral tone of the board members, saying that they would rather end the investigation than weaken any potential spiritualist hypothesis. At the end of June, he and Irene and Andrea went on holiday. They arrived home about a month later later from northern France to find out that he was out of the job. The institute straight up fired him. He went to collect his things to find everything related to the Alma fielding case under lock and key, a key that he did not have access to. Not only the transcripts and images, but even his personal notes that he kept in a locked drawer which had been opened by the board. In a letter sent to the Light and Occult Review magazines, he voiced his displeasure. September issues read, quote, I have been one of the founders of the IIPR. I have directed its research for four years with considerable sacrifice. I have built the institute with my sweat and blood. It belonged to me more than any member of the council. He then publicly called on the institute's members to help defend him. They did not. Even his closest supporter at the time, Eileen Garrett, was trying to put distance between herself and Fodor, as well as Alma's case, saying that she had no interest in mediumship and that she wasn't impressed by any of the tricks that Alma Fielding pulled. To Fodor, she asked him to refrain from quoting her or Yuvani should he write and publish a report. 
A month later in the Institute's newsletter, they acknowledged his efforts in the founding of the Institute. Fodor's former protege, Laurie, had now been promoted to research officer and published a letter informing the public that the Institute was going to be more sympathetic to mediums and such. A clear jab at Fodor's typical methods. Now, why, we will never know, but the Institute did, around this time, return all of Fodor's findings on the Alma case, and gave him access to the Institute's evidence box regarding her poltergeist. Still worried for her well-being, though, Fodor reached out to Alma Fielding, asked if she wished to complete her course of psychoanalysis, but he was ghosted. So we smash cut to June the following year, when Irene Fodor heard of someone new moving to London. Fresh from Vienna, Sigmund Freud was laying low in London, the beginnings of jaw cancer starting to hit him hard. Irene insisted that Fodor take his findings to Freud and get his opinions on his psychical, psychological, mental breaks. Fodor didn't want to, more out of reverence for the man's time, thinking that he wouldn't be interested in any of Fodor's hypotheses. He knew that Freud's thoughts on the supernatural belief, he thought that they were a regression to animistic fantasies. And we do not have time to unpack the ethnocentric views of primitive animism, though I do want to do a series on early religions in the future. Despite these thoughts, though, Freud did believe that unconscious thoughts could be telepathically transferred. So Irene got his address and hauled Fodor behind her. She introduced herself to the housekeeper and disappeared inside. She emerged three quarters of an hour later to inform Fodor that Freud agreed to read about the Alma Fielding case. So Fodor put together his notes and wrote out his conclusion. The poltergeist outbreak and subsequent tricks were a result of sexual assault during Alma's childhood. After noting that the evidence was tiresome for a skeptic like himself, he wrote, quote, I have found myself rightly rewarded. Your attempt to turn the interest from the question of whether the observed phenomena were genuine or fraudulent, your efforts to study the medium psychology and to uncover her previous history seem to me to be the right steps. It is very regrettable that the IIPR would not follow you. I also hold it very probably that your conclusions regarding this case are correct. Naturally, it would be desirable to confirm them by a real analysis of the party. Fodor asks Freud if he could quote his letter in if the manuscript were ever to be published, to which Freud agreed. As a middle finger to the Institute, Fodor sent them a copy of the letter, telling them that it vindicated him. With that letter in hand, Fodor had the courage to publish the manuscript, and wrote to Alma Fielding to inform her of his plans to do just that, collect all his poltergeist stories, including hers, and publish them in a single volume. After the Institute fired him, he took a freelance job investigating a haunted cottage of a 40-year-old film editor. She suffered from a stillbirth, and her lover walked out on her. Fodor determined that the ghostly wrappings and knocks were actually her subconscious self bringing to light her buried trauma. And apparently this psychoanalysis worked because the ghost just kind of stopped after his visit. Alma Fielding was not too happy about his idea of publishing her case. So she, along with Les, went to the Institute, recently rebranded to the International Institute of Psychical Research after merging with the British College of Psychic Science, to protest. Wilford Becker wrote to Fodor, warning him that the Fieldings would very much make a noise if he presented their case. Fodor never replied, but to be fair, he had himself a little bit of a handful already. Now, I've mentioned a few times the Psychic News lawsuit uh, that had been put on hold quite a, quite a few times. Now, it was the actual date for the court. It had been set. 1st of March, 1939. 
Psychic News' ace in the hole would be the claims of sexual obsession and deviancy in the guise of psychic research. They failed to gather any actual evidence, and the two authors that had written the articles that prompted Fodor's libel case were no longer working for the psychic news. And so they couldn't be reached, no way of getting them on the stand. Despite his sour ending with the Institute, Fodor actually had several members defend his character and methods. Shaw Desmond said that he always treated the mediums with scripturalist fairness. In the end, Fodor was awarded £104 in damages, and two days later, he was off on a ship with his family to live in New York. Now, my favourite part, end montage time. The International Institute for Psychical Investigation renamed itself yet again, becoming the Institute for Experimental Metaphysics, only to cease operating in 1947. Eileen Garrett moved to New York as well in 1940. She set up a parapsychological institute herself and ran a publishing company. Even though she distanced herself with the Alma Fielding case, she would welcome Fodor into her employee in the years following. Alma, the May following the libel lawsuit, told the reporter that the poltergeist still haunted her. Her and Les kind of split up after that. He lived in a house at Devon working on local farms, and Alma bounced between that house and the house of Frank Martin during the late 40s, early 50s, and Les seemed pretty fine with that agreement. She didn't give up the spiritualism and would hold seances at the village houses uh, over those years. Les would pass away from a heart attack in the 60s and Alma would become ill. She moved in with her son Don in 1973. Three years later, she passed away in her home at Devon. Now, from the sounds of it, um, she wasn't a fantastic person later in life, being a rude, crass woman. Um, more on the thoughts of that, I think very much she made like literally everything up, but let's move on. Fodor, during his time at New York in the 40s, took up training as a psychoanalyst. In 1945, he gave a paper to the Association for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, which outlined Alma Fielding and the definitive conclusion that the poltergeist was not a spirit, but a bundle of projections bent on destruction and mischief, born out of the frustration and rage. I don't know how it helps his claims, but he does cite the plot of Dead of Night, a movie about a ventriloquist dummy coming alive, so there's that. During his work as a psychoanalyst, he took on haunted patients like a woman whose incubus brought her, quote, a mad, happy darkness, and a teenager who defe defeated his poltergeist by writing science fiction. It seems that the side of him that believed in spirits and mediums sort of just lost out to his more rational and scientific mind. He no longer cared for investigating mediums, seeing it as a rather futile exercise. This may have been because in 1943, he learnt that the medium that passed on a message to him from his father was in of himself fluent in Hungarian, and that the Hebrew that he had heard at his grandfather's graveside very closely resembled a rabbi's blessing over a grave. In 1958, he would publish On the Trial of the Poltergeist, Alma Fielding's Case. He omitted much to do with Severn and Garrett, and he took great efforts to obscure the identities of the Fieldings themselves. But the story was out there, and it went into great detail of the four months that he investigated the poltergeist. The years following the publication of his book, other psychologists would identify natural explanations for supernatural experiences listed in the book. Incubi, vampires, all explained away as sleep paralysis. 
In addition to this, in the 80s, researchers found a correlation between childhood trauma and adult experiences with the paranormal. In addition to that, sexually abused children were unusually likely to report supernatural events. Fodor's ideas of psychosis would also live on in fiction. Shirley Jackson, you may have heard of her, would write a little horror story about a disturbed individual that triggers supernatural events in Hill House. In fact, Fodor was invited as a consultant when Nelson Gidding adapted Shirley Jackson's book for the big screen. There, he met Jackson, and she confirmed to Fodor that she had indeed read his work. Fodor would pass away in New York about a year after meeting Jackson in 1964. And that should wrap up everything to do with the poltergeist of Alma Fielding and the career of Nandor Fodor. Thank you for listening to the Sects and Murder podcast. If you enjoy this episode or any of the others, be sure to share it around to your friends. <laughs>